Hello and welcome to the new Books in German Studies podcast. My name is Darren O'Byrne and today I'm joined by Gunter Louis, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, who's published numerous books on, for example, the Armenian massacres during the First World War, the Nazi persecution and murder of the gypsies, and America during the Vietnam War. But today he's going to speak to us about his latest book, Perpetrators, The World of Holocaust Killers, published this year with Oxford University Press. Professor Louis, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you. Now, I'm reading the back cover of the book here, and it says that you have a almost a, a personal connection to what you've been writing about over the last while. If you wouldn't mind, could you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your career, and how it is you came to write the book? Okay. Uh, I was born in Germany in 1923 and lived uh, there for under Nazi uh the Nazi regime for about six years from nineteen thirty three to nineteen thirty nine. I was fifteen and a half when I left Germany for what was then the British Mandate of Palestine. Uh later I joined the British Army. I uh served for two for four years in the Palestine Regiment and the Jewish Brigade and then came to this country in nineteen forty six. Now why did I write this book uh, I've been working on the history of Nazi Germany um, for quite some time, but uh, the issue of why so many ordinary Germans became mass killers is really of somewhat more direct interest to me because I was on the re- recipient end of stormtrooper violence during Kristallnacht, what is known as the Night of Broken Glass in November of 19. 19- 38, uh, I was on a farm in southern Germany preparing to go to Palestine and learning farming, and we were assailed by a uh, horde of Nazi stormtroopers and badly beaten up. And my father, like uh, all adult German Jews, was taken to a concentration camp. He was in Buchenwald for almost three months, and barely survived. So I have a very direct uh, link and connection to Nazi violence, and this is the issue I I try to uh, explain uh, and and cover in this book. Uh, Why did so many Germans engage in the murder of the Jews when it was possible not to do so? The aim of the book, it seems, is to challenge the idea that that everyone who participated in the atrocities during the Second World War, that they were that they were all monsters, or, or that there was even a, a single perpetrator type. And in the first chapter on the concentration camps, you you talk about how there were different types of perpetrators besides what you call the the sadists who actually relished the task. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about about the different types of people you you you've co- confronted or, or encountered during your research? Yeah, I think uh, this distinction holds true not only for the guards of the concentration camps, but also for the men who served in the so-called Einsatztruppen, the uh, special task forces who moved behind the German army in Russia and murdered Jews. Uh, there was no uh, single type of, of a Nazi killer. Uh, Germans uh, participated in the murder of the Jews for a variety of reasons. Yes, there were, if you would say this, uh, who enjoyed the brutality, but they were relatively small in number. 
Um, most uh, Germans, I think, uh, simply obeyed orders because that was the way they were brought up. Uh, they were in a war situation, and their superiors ordered them uh, to engage in these massacres, and they were groomed and educated to obey orders. So that was probably the, the most widespread reason. They simply didn't think about the moral angle involved and uh, assumed that if they're given an order, this is the thing to do, and they must carry it out. Then there were some uh, who were Nazi ideologues, who really were Jew haters, had be, become uh, vicious anti-Semites, and uh, who therefore, like the sadists, uh, enjoyed uh, what they were doing. And then there was the issue of group pressure. Uh, this is what uh, Christopher Browning has uh, written about at great length uh, in his work. Uh, social psychology explains to us why people in groups frequently act differently from the way they would act on their own. There's a pressure of the group, uh, of peers. You don't want to be an outlier. You want to conform. Um, and so that's another very important reason, I think, that people simply fell into line with what the more aggressive among them were doing. You mentioned there something about how, and you mentioned this in the book as well, about how there were sort of some things unique to the German character that almost predisposed them to, to following orders. Um, um, could you maybe just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that that issue, though, has to be handled with great caution. I think one of the problems of Goldhagen's well-known work on the subject is that he generalizes about the Germans. The Germans somehow uh, were natural killers. I do not subscribe to this view. It turns out that Lithuanians and Romanians and uh, some white Russians acted with far greater brutality uh, than the uh, Germans. Uh, yes, it is true that uh, in German education, as I said before, there was an emphasis on obedience, uh, uh, appreciating authority, uh, but this is not enough to explain uh, uh, what happened, because if that were to be the uh, all-important cause, then everyone would have behaved this way, and this is not the case. We do know that uh, people acted in a variety of ways, and uh, while some indeed uh, became willing killers, uh, uh, some uh, quite successfully, it turns out, uh, opted out. So the explanation of national character, I think, is inadequate. Okay, so it would only bring us so far, if you will. Right. Another idea that you, you challenge, and this is one of the things I noticed about the book, is it sort of it busts a lot of myths, um, or at least maybe it busts a lot of uh, received wisdom, you could say. Uh, and another thing you, you, you seem to challenge is the notion that the, the Holocaust was, was limited to the concentration camps or the death camps. Um, and you tell us, in fact, that many, many, uh, well, over a million people uh, at least were, were killed uh, by shooting over ravines or, or, or by ditches. Now, it seems to me that the tasks of killing in these two different zones are completely different. Um, could you maybe elaborate on the differences, uh, the different experiences of Holocaust killers in these different zones of, of mass killing? Yes. Uh, the Germans started by shooting Jews in execution pits. Um, and this, it turned out, became very difficult for the uh, perpetrators. There were large numbers 
who had psychological breakdowns. Um, when you kill someone with a bayonet or with a shot, you're close to the victim, and this is far more difficult than, let's say, dropping a bomb from a, a bomber at 30,000 feet. So being so close to the victims and having to do the dirty work uh, so directly became very difficult, and it was for this reason, um, because the killers simply didn't perform as expected, uh, that they moved to the uh, use of gas. Uh, this was much more impersonal. It took just a few people to hurt um, victims into gas chambers who were that uh, these were rooms that were um, um, described uh, by signs as showers. Uh, many uh, of the victims did not realize what was going to happen. They really believed there were going to be showers. Um, and then just a few uh, at the top dropped these pellets of gas. Uh, so it became a very impersonal way of killing, and that turned out to be far more efficient uh, and far easier uh, on the killers. So that is why we have these two modes of killing. Uh, the shooting at the beginning, which took a large number of victims, until they finally realized it didn't work too well, and they moved to the gas chambers. Many of the consequences that you talk about in the book, uh, and you, you talk about these specifically in relation to those people who were involved in mass shootings, and I'm talking about the perpetrator perspective here, did they just essentially disappear for those who were operating in the death camps? Did they not have these, um, how would you say, physical ailments as a result of what they were involved in? Well, first of all, the, the total number of Germans in the operation of the death camps was very small. They utilized large numbers of Ukrainians and even uh, so-called Jewish death companies. They, they enlisted Jews in uh, disrobing the victims, in, the, uh, in uh, taking, uh, getting rid of, getting their teeth uh, out, and so forth, and so on. So the number of Germans involved was far smaller than in the earlier uh, phase. And then secondly, as I said, it was a more impersonal way uh, of acting. So uh, really, very few uh, had any direct contact with their victims. For example, the task of uh, herding the uh, arriving Jews into the gas chambers was usually carried out by Ukrainians. Um, the role of the Germans was limited to dropping the pallets of gas, so that was somewhat impersonal, and that was somehow easier. And that's why we had fewer instances of Germans uh, going to pieces, as it were, while serving in the death camps. Uh, there were a few instances, but the number was far smaller. You also talk in the book an awful lot about ideology um, and whether I, I just want to know whether or not all of the people who sort of participated in these episodes of mass violence were were they all anti-Semitic? Um, did they all really believe in in this national socialist worldview, um, or or were there other factors influencing their behaviour? Well, by the time at the time when the killing started in 19, systematic killing in nineteen forty one. Uh, Germans had been indoctrinated in the Nazi ideology, including anti-Semitism in prominent place, uh, for something like eight or nine years. Uh, and especially for young people, uh, this was a very effective uh, way. Uh, young people are impressionable uh, in all societies. And so I think, yes, uh, the great majority of uh, Germans by 1941 had absorbed 
the anti-Semitic ideology to various degrees, uh, some more than others. And we have some systematic studies on that which I cite. Yes, so it is correct to say that by 1941, uh, anti-Semitic ideology was a kind of uh, precondition that affected everyone to various degrees of intensity, to be sure. And that explains, I think, to some extent, the different ways in which some of them carried out this task. But yes, uh, anti-Semitism, I think, was definitely the precondition, the underlying uh, factor that explains uh, what happened. And if we accept that, that anti-Semitism um, was a, a precondition, if you will, what are the factors on the ground, the sort of the more immediate factors that that bring people to to behave in this way. Yeah, well, I, I think I mentioned some of them before. The obedience to orders uh, is certainly one of them. Uh, group pressure, uh, not wanting to be different from one's comrades, not to be considered a weak link, not to be considered. Uh, 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 different from others, these group pressures are 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 important. So um, my point is that in order to explain the uh, killing uh, on the part of an individual, you're dealing not with one factor, but you're dealing with a number of factors that interact and reinforce each other with anti-Semitism as a kind of a precondition, and then other factors uh, feeding in as well. As you rightly point out. In the book, after the war, it was quite common for former killers to to play down uh, what they had done by saying that they had just been following orders uh, and that if they hadn't have killed, well, then they themselves might have been killed or or sent to a concentration camp, for example. How much of this how much of this was true, would you say? I mean, is there any can we put any emphasis on what they're saying? No, it is not true at all. In fact, several exhaustive studies have been undertaken that have shown that it was possible for someone to say, I'm too weak, uh, my nerves do not allow me to participate in the killing, and these people would be excused. Himmler was quite specific. Uh, he said you don't, he didn't want weaklings. Uh, he wanted enthusiasts. He wanted people who were willing uh, to carry out uh, the killing out of conviction. So uh, you, it was easy to get out, and large numbers, indeed, well, large numbers is exaggerated perhaps, but a significant number uh, took advantage of this possibility, and this, I described this in a separate chapter. Uh, you could, as I said, plead uh, that, your you, that your nerves did not allow it, and many indeed had nervous breakdown, so they were simply taken out as a matter of course. Uh, uh, you could not opposed the killing actively, uh, that of course was not allowed. But you could get out by, by pleading weaknesses, and um, no one, there's not a single case known of someone who pleaded uh, that he could not carry out the killing uh, who was actually punished severely, either sent to a concentration camp or worse. Not a single case. As I say, the, uh, the subject has been studied exhaustively and carefully, and so we are quite sure about this conclusion. It has been noted many times that as much as the National Socialist regime was a regime based on consent, uh, there was also a good degree of terror enforced, and indeed many, many people lived with the idea of terror, and I was just wondering, would you maybe concede that maybe some of these people 
at least maybe thought that they might have been punished had they acted in a certain way and walked away. And yes, I think that is correct. I think uh, many of them probably really believed uh, that if they uh, were to resist, uh, that they would be punished severely. But on the other hand, there was the evidence what other comrades may have done. They had witnessed that others had opted out and nothing had happened. So it's a mixed picture. Yes, there probably were some who sincerely believed uh, that they had to do it, otherwise they would be killed. But um, I think that is... Uh, probably a relatively small number. Most uh, of these people were in a situation where they, they knew uh, what was going on and that it was possible to get out. From my own perspective, at least, your, your chapter on post-war justice was arguably the most revealing. It, it's certainly the most revealing that, that I've ever read anyway. And could you maybe just say a little bit about how Holocaust killers were were treated after the war and, and and maybe how this changed over time, if at all? Yeah. The Allies uh, conducted a large number of trials uh, by military tribunals, and the uh, standard of guilt was uh, participation... Uh, um, in in the uh, killing process. It was not necessary to prove uh, that um, defendant A had uh, killed uh, victim X. Uh, if you served in a concentration camp or if you had been a member of the Einsatzgruppe, the killing squad, uh, that was a prima facie case of guilt unless you could prove that you had opted out or had opposed it. Now, uh, the uh, Germans, when they took over the uh, uh, trial of uh, Nazis, um, moved to a different standard. And under German law, which they applied, it was necessary to show that each uh, individual case of murder had been carried out uh, with deliberation, and they had to prove in each case that a defendant uh, A had killed a victim uh, X. Now, that became very difficult uh, because uh, so much time had passed. Uh, the defendants covered up for each other. Uh, many of the victims, of course, could no longer be there to, to prove that they had been killed. So as a result, um, they... Um, started to um, uh, equip a large number of people simply for lack of proof. In addition to that, under German law, they uh, tried uh, most of them as accomplices uh, because they had been given orders uh, to kill. Uh, so that provided another way out. So instead of being uh, convicted of murder, they were simply accomplices uh, to murder, and that involved a lighter um, a penalty. In addition, large numbers of these uh, courts were staffed by former Nazi judges, and that probably was the worst part of the system. There were, at the beginning, the first 10, 20 years, there were no other judges available, so they used these former Nazi judges, and as could have been predicted, uh, they were sympathetic to every possible excuse that the defendants invoked. For example, many of them invoked uh, the uh, 
system of Nazi education. So, in a way, if you had been a good Nazi and had obeyed the Nazi ideology, uh, this was considered a mitigating factor. So, for all of these reasons, uh, the result has, was that uh, during these uh, German trials, uh, for the longest time, really until about five years ago, uh, the penalties were extremely light, large numbers were acquitted, and many people started to talk about a uh, distortion uh, of, of justice. Now, this changed um, a few years ago when an enterprising German prosecutor in Munich uh, started to invoke the um, uh, allied uh, standard of justice, that is to say, uh, participation uh, in the uh, system, irrespective of uh, any one particular individual uh, deed, and that made possible, of course, to uh, to indict a larger number of people who previously uh, had escaped. But by this time, of course, uh, by now, that is to say, um, most of the defendants are in their early 90s. Many of them are no longer uh, fit to be tried. Uh, they are senile. So the uh, awareness that the standard of uh, guilt had been wrong came too late. Uh, and as a result, the overall record, especially on the part of the German courts, is very poor. So justice, just, just to clear up, justice according to the common design approach of the Allies after yeah, the war, right. that, would, that would treat somebody, say, a bookkeeper at Auschwitz as the same as somebody who drops the gas pellets? Is that, is that correct? Exactly. exactly. It's like a situation where, let's say, uh, two guys go to rob a bank. One goes inside, uses a gun, and, and kills one of the uh, tellers. The other one is simply be standing outside, uh, watching out, and um, standing watch. When they are caught, both of them are tried for murder under American law. Uh, they are equally guilty whether they uh, stood watch or whether they killed or not. And this is the principle that was applied in the Allied courts. And would there be a difference in terms of sentences handing out for the... Uh, they, might, uh, they might occasionally invoke a certain mitigating factor, yes. Uh, the bookkeeper possibly uh, might be uh, judged somewhat less severely than the guy who actually killed, yes. But they're equally guilty. And that was up to the courts to prove, to differentiate between the different types of actions once they... Once they yeah, were basically yeah. passing down. In other words, it was a prima facie uh, assumption of guilt. Uh, the individual could then show uh, if he just was a bookkeeper, he could claim, well, you know, I just was a bookkeeper. The other guy killed, he should be, and so forth. So, yes, there was some uh, mitigation of punishment, but they were equally guilty. Can I ask how you feel about present day efforts? So, here in Germany, I think it was three years ago, a Lüneburg court tried um, the an Auschwitz bookkeeper to, I yep. think it was three to four years in prison. Um, how, what do you think about the German justice system's approach to it today? Uh, and do you think it, it sort of serves, it serves a purpose? Yes, I think it has, as I said, it has greatly improved when the standard of justice was changed, standard of guilt was changed. Um, I think the results have, have been quite good. Uh, to be sure, the, one begins to scratch bottom, as it were, the bookkeepers, and uh, there are very few left who can be tried because of the age factor. Uh, but yes, on the whole, I think the, the, these uh, trials are conducted 
farmer fairly. Uh, you see, you're dealing now with a new generation of both judges and prosecutors, and I think that has made all the difference. Uh, in contrast to the earlier years, when both uh, judges and prosecutors frequently were former Nazis, or at least had been uh, sympathetic to the regime, uh, this new generation of Germans uh, is quite different. I've always felt that the way the new Germany has tried to come to terms with its past is really quite exemplary uh, over the last, uh, let's say, 40 years, ever since the 1960s, 1970s. So, yes, uh, the, the difference is quite significant. Very much so. I was at a conference last week uh, and I heard the comment for the first time that many Germans consider themselves to be the world champions in uh, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, uh, coming to terms with the past. <laughs> right. And I think they have done very well uh, uh, since uh, th these last few years. In fact, I sometimes feel sorry for some of these young Germans who have to bear a cross, uh, none of their making. They are... Uh, have to bear a sense of guilt for what an earlier generation have done. And I think their willingness to shoulder this responsibility and to acknowledge it uh, is exemplary. Uh, it stands in sharp contrast, for example, to the Japanese, uh, who do their level best to this day uh, to de deny everything. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, uh, as far as I can remember, that's the very last sentence in your book, that it, this, this is a cross that generations of Germans who have next to no memory of this whatsoever that they have continued to bear. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, in, in Germany in the 1980s, there was debates over the historicization of the Holocaust and the extent to which that could actually, that could actually take place. And in about 20 to 30 years, this will, with the, with the passing of the last perpetrators, the last victims, this will pass into history. And I wonder then, uh, in your opinion, whose cross is it to bear then? Is it, is it only the German cross to bear, or, or does the world, in a way, have a responsibility towards this, towards this event? Well, the world, perhaps to some extent, shares responsibility. For example, we know that in the 1930s, uh, most of the Allied governments, the British, the Americans, uh, were unwilling to accept Jewish refugees. Uh, some of them, uh, Switzerland, uh, sent uh, people who had managed to get into Switzerland back uh, to their death. So, yes, the world shares some of the responsibility. But Germany, I think, is a, a special case. And I, I think it will continue to be the case uh, that uh, Germany will have to acknowledge what happened during these 12 years, no matter how much time passes. And I am confident that future generations will continue uh, to do so. Yes, it is true. There are some in Germany now who say enough is enough. And uh, why should we uh, uh, be uh, considered uh, guilty for something uh, our grandfathers uh, did? But I don't think that is the dominant intellectual view. I think, by and large, um, enlightened public opinion does accept the responsibility. And uh, the people who, who voice the view enough is enough uh, they exist, but I don't think they're considered normative and, uh, and typical. Well, as I'm sure of you, you're aware, some of the voices who are calling for a different approach, um, they're, politically speaking at least, growing in number. Uh, if I may ask, it's a little bit off topic, but how, how do you feel about, about the rise of the IFD here in Germany? And, uh, yeah. 
Well, this is, of course, a very unfortunate development, and in many ways, um, the, some of the neo-Nazis and those who shout enough is enough uh, are now uh, being uh, reinforced um, in their views, strengthened in their views by the xenophobic sentiment that has developed towards refugees and foreigners. Um, I think most of us in America uh, were greatly admiring uh, Chancellor Merkel's willingness to take such a large number of, of refugees from the Middle East uh, in uh, 2016. But in retrospect, as uh, she herself has acknowledged, it may have been a mistake to take in so many uh, refugees because it has fed uh, this uh, new xenophobic sentiment on which the AFD is, is thriving. So um, this is a very unfortunate development, and there's no way of telling uh, just how far this will go. I'm optimistic on the whole. I do not think that we're going to get a real upsurge of neo-Nazi sentiment, but there's no question that it has uh, been revived uh, indirectly uh, because of that situation. If we can just come back to the perpetrators for for a minute, um in Chapter 4, you sort of give a, an analysis of the different portraits of, of the perpetrators, as you call them. Um, is there one sort of typical characteristic that defines their backgrounds? Are they all, are they all the same in any make, shape or form? Not really. Uh, that is the interesting finding, I think, that, uh, as I said before, they became perpetrators for a great variety of reasons. There's no one background factor uh, that explains um, why they did uh, what they did. Uh, all the explanations that were initially advanced, like uh, national character uh, or membership in the SS, uh, all of these factors uh, turn out to be not decisive. That is to say, they exist, of course, as a factor, but uh, they uh, by themselves are, are not uh, sufficient to explain. So we end up with a picture which is a bit confusing and uh, not as clear-cut as, let's say, the one that uh, Goldhagen paints. Uh, uh, his picture is, is a very simplified one, and uh, that, that explains perhaps some of its uh, reception in, in Germany at the time. But in point of fact, as I'm trying to show, the perpetrators were a variety. It came from a variety of backgrounds, acted from a variety of motives, and uh, yes, there is no one uh, single perpetrator type. One of the things that really fascinated me about the book was some of the times where you explore the, the grey areas. So, for example, you talk briefly in the book about uh, people like uh, Generalkommissar Wilhelm Kuber in, in Min yeah. Minsk and uh, Johann Sosnowski in Sachsenhausen concentration camp and how they eventually came to reject, at least in part, some of what was going on around them. And I was wondering whether people like Sosnowski in particular, who you say actually sometimes helped victims, whether he actually can be accurately described as a perpetrator? Well, uh, they were perpetrators for a time, and then they started to have second thoughts, to be sure. Uh, but they are part of the uh, general category of perpetrators, I think. Uh, yes, I mean, take a man like Kuba. Um, it was very interesting when he started to meet uh, German Jews who carried 
the first the iron cross uh, as proof of having been uh, a valiant fighter in World War One, he began to get second thoughts, and the stereotyped view of the Jew began to change, and eventually tried to help. Um, and and others uh, acted in similar ways. Uh, uh, I think it's an interesting phenomenon, and to some extent, these people deserve recognition. Uh, but uh, for many of for many of them, it came very late, and. Uh, uh, it came after a pretty dismal record that uh, preceded it. So they still, I think, remain uh, in the category of, of perpetrators, in, even though some of them eventually did have second thoughts. You talk a bit about how in letters and, and diary entries, um, you, you, you sort of see how these killers are, are, are justifying the execution of, of their victims and... and my understanding, at least, that you sort of you take this as, as as proof that they did at least believe in it to some extent. But I was wondering, to what to what extent would you say that this could be an ex post facto justification, and that once you once you're involved in something like that, you immediately begin to look for ways to justify it to yourself? Is that possible? I'm not so sure. I think many. I mean, these letters were written at the time when all this was going on. And it shows that many of them were quite enthusiastic about what they were going to do. I mean, there's a guy who says uh, he's unhappy that he wasn't selected for an execution squad, but he's happily looking forward to the next day when he has been chosen, so he will be able to participate in the killing. It's pretty, pretty awful stuff to read, and uh, really, uh, um, it's not a, a justification. It just shows how convinced some of these uh, killers were, how they hated the Jews and how they welcomed the chance to kill them. Now, this was not typical necessarily, uh, but there were large numbers, and we have a large number of these letters. I cite many of them. Uh, so it was not an isolated phenomenon. So the letters, I think, are an important source. They were written at the time uh, when this was going on. I don't think they are a rationalization. And I just have one final question for you because we've already taken up uh, nearly 40 minutes of your time. Um, it's a very, very brief one. Ordinary uh, Germans or ordinary men? <laughs> That's a very important question, really. Um, I um, I would say ordinary men uh, because it is um, kind of... The, their human characteristics and human factors which make these people into killers, not necessarily exclusively German ones. As I said before, uh, there were Romanians, Lithuanians, Estonians um, um, who were killed as enthusiastically and as brutally uh, as any Germans and sometimes worse. So it's not really ordinary Germans so much. Uh, it is a human uh, phenomenon that we are dealing with. Now, I'm not saying that it is likely that, let's say, in a country like the United States, it would be equally easy uh, to recruit uh, a band of killers for a task of this kind on the contrary. I'm convinced that it would be very, very difficult, perhaps even impossible. Uh, I'm a strong believer in what we, what we call American exceptionalism. America is different uh, from German society. So yes, the, uh, ger the German background is important, but it is not a, a full explanation and at least uh, it is, we know 
that in Cambodia, uh, in, in Africa, in many situations, horrible instances of genocide took place. Uh, so it can happen in other places than Germany. So I, I reject the argument of Goldhahn, uh, who does speak of ordinary Germans, because I think that um, misstates the problem. Are you working on anything new at the moment, a new project? Well, actually, I've just uh, completed a book uh, which is uh, I, which I thought was dealing with another interesting subject. It's called "The German Jewish Symbiosis: The uh, Story of a Blighted Hope," and it deals with the interesting phenomenon that German Jews, uh, until 1933, tried to be more German than their Gentile compatriots. Uh, and that is why, of course, the onset of the Nazi persecution came uh, to them uh, like such an unexpected, horrible blow, uh, which they had not expected. Uh, so I try to explain why the German Jews were such good Germans, and I, I talk about the German Jewish youth movement, about various German patriotic organ Jewish organizations uh, like the uh, organization of frontline uh, soldiers uh, and so forth. Uh, German, they considered themselves German citizens of the Jewish faith, with the emphasis on being Germans. And that is a rather interesting phenomenon that requires some explanation, and that's what I'm dealing with in this book. Uh, it is now under consideration at Oxford, and I hope it will be published next year. Well, you yourself are a, a German Jew, and so you've you've lived that experience. Um, did you identify as a a German, or, or, or very much so, very much so? I mean, it took. Uh, I I was a very was very typical in this respect. I was a member of a German youth youth movement, which was strictly patriotic in German. And it took really, a, it was a kind of a radical blow that fell upon us, and which made us realize uh, that the Germans didn't want us. They didn't consider us real Germans, and they considered us Jews. And at that point, many of us became Zionists, and I was one of many uh, young German Jews who went to Palestine. I went to Kibbutz, I think I mentioned that earlier. So yes, it was a radical switch. Uh, and uh, in many ways, this uh, present book is kind of autobiographical. It draws on my personal experience, yes. Well, I hope someday to be able to uh, review that, and I wish you, with the, uh, wish you the best of luck. Uh, the book is well, called... thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. The latest book is called Perpetrators, the World of Holocaust Killers, and it's available almost everywhere on Oxford University Press for about 20 American dollars or 30 euros, and I really, really can't recommend it highly enough, especially if you want to understand the really complex and varying motivations of, of the people who participated in, in the Holocaust. Professor Levy, thank you so much for talking to us today. And like I said, best of luck with all future projects. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it.